Hello and welcome to the Autism in Real Life podcast. In each episode, you'll get practical strategies by taking a journey into the joys and challenges of life with autism. I'm your host, Ilya Walsh, and I'm an educator and the parent of two young adults, one of which is on the autism spectrum. Join me as I share my experience and the experiences of others so that we may see the unique gifts and talents of individuals on the autism spectrum fully recognized. Hello, everyone, and welcome. This is Ilya again, and uh, today I'm very excited to have uh, Nomi came with me. And uh, Nomi, uh, I know you from A and E, and also just um, having you, uh, having listened to you present and speak at a variety of different venues and conferences, um, and you know, really just love uh, your, you know. My biggest takeaway from your message uh, is uh, your self-awareness, your ability to self-advocate, and really just your insights. Um, And so I thought it'd be great because I know whenever we do just chat regularly, (laughs) there's so much to talk about. So I would, you know, I figured I would invite you. So I'm really glad to have you on today. So um, do you want to give a little background about yourself? Um, yeah, absolutely. Um, so uh, it's it's a pleasure to be on your podcast. It's a complete pleasure. I've been enjoying many of the episodes. Um, and it's nice to connect with you again because uh, the pandemic kind of has us in separate silos. So it's nice to hear a familiar voice, even if I can't see you. Um, and this, this should be fun. Um, yeah, I... Um, usually when I, when I give my background, I... Um, I give an emphasis on mental health um, because that's something that I have struggled with so much over the years. And I've given lots of talks about how how my mental illnesses have impacted me in the context of having Asperger's. Um, And I do do use the term Asperger's, which is an old term. Um, It's no longer, uh, you know, an an actual clinical diagnosis anymore, but I use it out of tradition because when I was diagnosed, um, it was a diagnosis in the DSM-4. So that's why I'm using that term to refer to autism without intellectual disability. Um, And I also use the term Aspie to refer to a person with Asperger's. So that's sort of my preferred lingo. so yeah, so I you know I grew up um, in a pretty affluent town outside of Boston, um, the town of Brookline, um, and had um, supportive family, and went to um, very good schools. They were public schools, but many people compared them to private schools because they had such good teachers and such strong curricula. Um, and I think for many kids that would have been a, a really positive experience. Um, Many of my peers had a very positive experience in that environment. But for me, I had undiagnosed Asperger's syndrome, including a lot of learning challenges, an uneven learning profile in the context of my Asperger's. And um, I really suffered. I really suffered and struggled trying to keep up with my classmates. And I 
took my schoolwork very seriously, but it was too much for me and it was too hard. And all that stress of trying to keep up academically while at the same time being isolated socially and at the same time experiencing bullying, which is unfortunately very common in our population. Um, and at the same time, being confused about who I was and what was wrong with me and what was going on and where I fit in in the world. All of that stress led to tremendous mounting anxiety. So that by the time I got to middle school, I was actually beginning to feel quite depressed. Because when anxiety goes on unchecked for years, it can sort of crash the system, just um, lets go and crashes into a depression. <laughs> And it, um, and that that you know is not surprising because anxiety is so stressful for the body and the mind. And um, I became quite depressed, and the depression increased through high school, and it increased after high school. And I still hadn't been diagnosed with with anything really. Um, and when I was um, twenty one years old, um, right around my twenty first birthday, actually. Um, I was diagnosed with Asperger's syndrome, and I was also diagnosed with bipolar disorder. Um, so I received both diagnoses at the same time um, after getting extensive neuropsychological and psychological testing. Um, so this sort of put me in a tailspin. Um, but what I soon figured out was that Asperger's syndrome was something that was hopeful and that it was challenging but hopeful and contained gifts as well as struggles. Whereas bipolar disorder really, really, really stinks. So I have been um, trying to deal with those two very separate conditions ever since. And I can say my attitude is I am an Aspie and I have bipolar. So that tells how I feel in terms of identification with the condition. Right. I do not consider autism or Asperger's to be an illness. Um, I do consider my bipolar disorder to be a very serious illness that I have to try to work with. Um, and I've given lots of talks about this. Um, but one of the things I've struggled with a lot is my self-esteem um, because somehow the combination of Asperger's and bipolar disorder, and I'm not sure really which one it is, but probably more the bipolar, um, I, they rendered me sort of unable to get through college and unable to work. Um, and so one thing I've struggled with and have made a lot of improvement on, but, but still really struggle with is um, trying to view myself as a valuable important member of society if I am not in school or working. And so I've had to do a lot of work in that regard. And I really have come to a point where I truly believe that every person, every person is a valuable, precious member of our society, whether or not they work. But it took a long time for me to get there because I was raised to believe that one must go to school, get an education, become a professional, um, and do work in order to be valuable. So it, there was a lot of learning to undo to arrive at that place of self-respect 
But the gift was that I arrived at not only self-respect, but a greater and deeper respect for other people with disabilities and other people who can't work for whatever reason. Yeah, I mean, I think you hit on something, um, you know, really important. And I've, I've talked about it a little bit in the past, but uh, the concept that, you know, the the sort of that linear progression of right you go to school maybe you go to college and then you get the job and that's sort of like what may, mm-hmm. and, and also I think the role models around us all have right that's what we see as we're as we grow yes. up and that's what we see when we go to school or you know if we have other jobs we see that around us and it and you know, I remember someone saying, you know, when someone said, oh, so tell me about yourself. And they say, well, I am a teacher or I am, you know, a nurse. <laughs> and, yes. and, and that. Yes. People ask, what right, do you it's do? always like the first thing uh, yeah. they ask you. And yeah. I remember a time when I was, um, you know, a stay at home mom and it, it almost, I almost felt like. <laughs> Like, I don't know, uh, this sense of it is it's like a self-worth piece where it's like, oh, well, shouldn't Uh, I be doing all these other things, too? (laughs) Right. They ask you the question. And in that moment, you sort of crumple (laughs) internally and begin to feel inadequate because of the way the question is. is Right. And I know they don't mean anything by it, but um, other it's cultural, it, I think. I've been told that it's quite right, cultural. Right, right. And I, I'm sure, yeah, I'm, I'm definitely yeah. sure that that's, that also uh, is impacted based on where you are in the country and, of course, where you are in the world as well um, and how we respond to yes. that. Um, so, so, yeah, so yeah. I appreciate you saying that, you know, building self-respect. And that's, um, you know, I know I, I talk a lot about self-awareness and self-advocacy, but there is a respect piece, which I think it, I think it's different, right? Yes. Um, self-respect is very different. Um, I would say that um, my self-awareness is generally um, fairly good uh, on a regular basis, whereas my self-respect fluctuates based on how I'm feeling and whether I'm feeling depressed and whether I'm comparing myself to others. And my self-respect is constantly something that I'm chasing after and trying to grasp. I find it much harder to hold on to than self-awareness, which is really just a matter of memorizing facts about the self or looking deeper into the self and taking in information. Well, yeah. And you say like just just <laughs> self-awareness, but... but, but it... <laughs> no, that's just not easy. I've been working on it 36 years, 37 years, and now I make it sound easy. <laughs> And, and for you, right, when I when I listen to you speak or we talk, it, it, it you make it sound easy because, right, you're you're focusing on different things. But other people might be focusing just on that piece of figuring out um, the facts about themselves and not just what other, you know, oh, not just yes. what other. Self-awareness is a journey. It is a yes. journey. Um, I just I guess for me, it feels like more of a linear journey in the sense that I can build on it. Whereas self-respect for me feels like it fluctuates and um, is, is less linear. But both of them are journeys that take such a long time and they can't be rushed, unfortunately, but they're totally worth it. Right. And I wonder if, you know, they say like when you're, and I, I'm still, I'm still working on this and I'm in my forties, but, um, but they say, you know, as you get older, um, you become less and less you know, concerned with other, what other people think of you and you do what you want to do. And, um, and I think it must be because it takes, it takes that long. <laughs> right. I think that's part of it, but you know what else I think? I think that that occurs because 
most people, by the time they get older, they have received enough positive regard and enough non-judgmental positive affirmation from others that they have internalized it and now no longer need it. So I actually believe that most people, maybe all people, actually require a certain amount of positive regard from others and a certain amount of um, just acceptance and respect and dignity from others before they can get to a point where they no longer need others to provide that. I think it's very hard to build that only from the inside. And the example I keep thinking of is that I know some individuals with Asperger's who are much older than I am and uh, much older than you, and they still have not reached a point of self-respect. And I think part of the problem is that these individuals have led very isolated lives and have not had the opportunity to receive that mirror of dignity and respect and affirmation from others around them. So they can still gain that, but they're starting much later. So I don't think it's just about age. I think it's about accumulated positive regard from the environment. And I think everyone needs that, including people with autism. So we really have to find our tribe and find our environment where we can receive that unconditional positive regard and gradually begin to internalize that. That's been my experience. Right. No, and I think that makes so much sense because I was, um, I actually attended the A&E conference uh, over the weekend. Oh, and how was it? <laughs> it was excellent. Most excellent. Um, nice, intimate, uh, different than the usual, you know, fall conference. Um, yes. If we were face to face or live in person, but it was a very nice, intimate um, venue. And I think there was a, the second set of speakers talked about uh, building connection and relationship. And it was, yeah. I think their tagline that stuck in my head was from... Um, from loneliness to connection. And I think, you know, they were talking about different strategies and how many hours of, of I guess, not a FaceTime, I'm going to use that in quotes, <laughs> that you need with people uh, mm -hmm. in order for them to be considered either an acquaintance or, you know, a, a good friend or someone who, like, you know, you can call at like three in the morning and they're going to come and help you. Um, and it's it's so yes. many hours, right? And yes. it sounds, it's very similar to what you're saying is you need a certain amount and without those connections, then you aren't, you are not going to receive that positive reinforcement of who you are are um and and the acceptance that we all need in order yes. to right to feel like you can trust somebody and then keep you know and also going. in order to feel that we can care for ourselves and respect ourselves and like ourselves i think that's also part of what we mean right right um so it's a two-way deal you trust the other person and you learn to trust and like yourself Right. And, and that is, that can be a really long journey. And sometimes, yes. as you've said, hard, harder sometimes than others. I think many right now are probably experiencing that because of a, a bit of isolation um, and uncertainty. So it's, you know, I'm hoping that um, people are finding ways to connect. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, I think what's going on in the world right now with the pandemic is people are realizing that there are a lot fewer people for them to connect to. And in a way, that sort of mirrors a very common autistic experience, which is that 
as we go about our lives, there are often fewer people for us to connect to. We often have fewer close relationships. It's just one of the hazards of the occupation of being autistic. And we have to work with that and make those deep and make those really count because there might be fewer of them. Right. Right. No, definitely. Definitely. Um, I want to go back to, you know, you talking about um, your struggle through school and then getting your diagnosis at 21, which is such a it's such a tricky age. <laughs> um, it, is, right? yeah. <laughs> it really is. Yeah. And and and, you know, did did that help you or. You know, I guess what what would what was the impact of you like getting this diagnosis? Um, I found it hugely helpful. I mean, I know I've definitely talked to a lot of people who have an initial period of shock that can last for quite a long time, and there can be some denial and just a a lack of desire to identify as autistic. But for me, um, the shock was pretty brief. And I credit part of that, um, part of that speedy coming around to the fact that I went to A&E um, within a few weeks of being diagnosed, I was attending groups at A&E. And they were so affirming of Asperger's syndrome and so accepting of it and so almost loving of it, you know, and, and they valued what I had to say. And I, I immediately felt that I was valued and that I also had something to contribute because I could communicate with and help the other folks um, at the organization. And so um, I think it was amazing. I think one thing that might have helped is that we were using the term Asperger's rather than autism. So I didn't have to contend with that, um, with that, you know, really scary, culturally stigmatized word autism as much. Right. Yep. Because we were we were focused on Asperger's, which doesn't have that stigma attached to it. Um, but I think more than that, I just, you know, I read through the criteria. I started reading books about it. I started reading autobiographies and biographies and Tony Atwood. Um, and everything I read, I thought, oh, my God, this is my life. And then I showed my parents and they said, oh, my God, this is your life. And <laughs> so it was a, it was a revelation all around. And suddenly everyone I knew, everyone in my circle was thinking, whoa, Nomi has a word for she just doesn't have she doesn't just have Nomi syndrome this is amazing there are other people and so it was it was a revelation and I am so so grateful that I got diagnosed and I really wish it had been earlier but still right, um, right. even at the age of 21 when I was still feeling rather adolescent and rebelling rebelling against most things in my life this was something that I could embrace because it felt so true it felt right. so perfect it was a perfect fit now I'm curious. I know some of your um, a lot. You've done a lot of work and research on psychology specifically, and and I don't know. Dare I say it's a it's a one of your special interests, uh, from what I can remember. Um, but I think you can say that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, so d I mean, do, do you, did that come about from before you were diagnosed, or was it like an interest in after you got your diagnosis and you're like, you know what, I need to learn more and find out more and get fascinated, you know, like get really fascinated with it? Yeah, that's an excellent question. Um, it started before. Um, it, uh, it was partly because I, I was in talk therapy from the age of 15. 
and talk therapy um, is so much about psychology and so much of so much of the talk therapy was actually confusing to me that it made me want to investigate psychology more to try to understand what was so confusing about this dynamic. Um, and then interestingly, I was taking some college classes and I took a college class on the psychology of emotion. And this was actually just before I was diagnosed with Asperger's. And th this class on the psychology of emotion actually helped me identify different emotions and what my emotions were. And, and it helped me understand what I was feeling and sort of how to, you can almost operationalize an emotion because an emotion is sort of a combination of like a body sensation, an urge, like something you want to do, and then maybe some thoughts or beliefs. Mm -hmm. And it was really, I loved like systematically, you know, my systematizing mind wanted to break this down and say, mm -hmm. okay, heart racing and approach someone, that's excitement heart racing and retreat, that's anxiety, like mm -hmm. going through what's happening in my body and my mind and my um, behaviors. And I, um, I came to understand emotions so much better. And this was really important to me because I'd had the experience of going to therapy and having my therapist ask me how I was feeling and I couldn't answer. Mm -hmm. So now after this class, I could answer. So even before I knew I had Asperger's, I knew that I needed to learn something from psychology and I knew that, that I could gain from that. Um, right. and, and it just really, really helped me. And yeah. So do you think that's part of your, um, your ability to, to really be good at self-reflecting and, you know, being super self-aware and you know building that self-respect i mean you've been it seems like you've been building the tools for a while i have been working on it for a while i would say i've been working on it since um since i started taking college classes which would be around age 18 or 19. Mm -hmm. um one interesting thing is that you know when people get to know me and they talk to me they often assume that i have a, an innate gift for self-awareness that it that, you know that that maybe um it's sort of always been there or maybe i just um have an innate tendency like just some extreme female um, superpower or something you know like that, that that's my special power um but it, that couldn't be farther from the truth i graduated high school having no idea what i was thinking what i was feeling what feelings were what my beliefs were, how I was different from others, um, what was upsetting me and distressing me, why I was having such a hard time. I was, I had no idea. And so I had to sort of build it from the bottom up. And the things that helped me were talk therapy, psychology classes. And then also I took some, um, I got some instruction in cognitive behavior therapy and dialectical behavior therapy mm -hmm. and if readers if readers look that up they can um read tomes about those therapies <laughs> because they are very very popular but both cognitive behavior therapy and dialectical behavior therapy um each in its own way they can help the they can help you become aware of your thoughts and also your beliefs and they can also help with emotional literacy and there are um handouts and there are worksheets and there's work to be done and there are are charts and patterns and it's very um it's it's very kind of nicely formatted 
in a way that I could really hold on to. Um, I like the way it was broken down and um, some of these, um, it, uh, some of these therapies can teach you to identify not only how you're thinking, but how your thoughts change if you feel depressed or if you feel anxious or scared. And it took a long time because at first, when I first did CBT, I just looked at this and I, I thought, I have no idea what this means. I am really stupid. I don't understand this. I must be really stupid. Um, and so it just took years of practice and kind of going over and over those handouts and worksheets. And eventually it started to make sense. And I, I realized that I could step back and become aware of what I was feeling and what I was thinking and what I was believing. And all of those things we might now call mindfulness, which is also really popular and also really, really a wonderful, wonderful gift if you can learn it. But it takes a lot of practice. I didn't used to have it at all. I used to hate the idea of mindfulness. So I can't, I can't do that. I'm too stupid. You know, I can't do that. I'm not made for that. And now I do it all the time. I've right. changed so much. It just takes practice, years of practice. We do, and I, I, it's funny. I, I know I've been studying uh, meditation and yoga for many years, but I remember early on, um, someone saying, and and I didn't get it then. I mean, it must have been maybe twenty years ago. And someone said, if you, you know, if you're looking for the quiet to meditate, they're like, no, no, that's not. That's easy. You have to be in the middle of a major city in a small apartment and hear all the noises around you, and then be able to meditate. <laughs> and I didn't really get, yeah, I didn't really, I didn't get it at the time. And honestly, I think it's been only in the last like year where I'm like, oh, I get it now. Like you're not going to be able to get rid of all of the intrusive thoughts. You're always going to have, your mind is going to wander. You're always going to have noises around you. Um, and there, right. There's always going to be something, some outside, uh, stimulus or maybe internal <laughs> that yes. you have to write like like you're saying yeah. kind of step away from and just like allow uh, in my in the way I think of it is I allow it and not judge it and that's like the yes. other part of the exercise right is not yes judging. mindfulness is definitely like a non-judgmental awareness and I think that yeah I like I like that um that story because I I think the point is that mindfulness needs we kind of want to cultivate a, a mindfulness that is available to us anywhere under any circumstances. That's the goal. That's the ideal. It's not always attainable. But if you can only be mindful and only be aware under perfect conditions, then you can't take it with you where you need it. Right. And of right. course, in life, you need it everywhere. Right. It could be standing in line. <laughs> or... Anywhere and everywhere we can benefit from mindfulness. Right. Um, we can't always have it. It's not always possible, but we could always benefit if it is possible, I think. Um, definitely. Yeah. Um, you had mentioned before that definitely, you know, when you had heard about, you know, Asperger's, that it was challenging, but hopeful. Um, so ha ha in what ways did did or did people, I know it sounds like you had a good support structure around you, um, but f but for you, how did... Um, what was the hopeful part for you? Well, I think um, I noticed the challenges first because I have a strong negativity bias. Um, <laughs> so one of the things that 
upset me was um, seeing that sort of having it validated that I do have a lot of learning problems. And I was hoping that I would just outgrow them, that I would outgrow my learning problems. And mm -hmm. so the, the diagnosis validated that that probably wasn't going to happen. Um, and I was also sort of hoping that as I got older, it would become easier to make and keep friends. So this validated that that probably wasn't going to be easy ever. Mm -hmm. um, the hope came in realizing that people with Asperger's can be very, very smart and very tenacious and um, very, I want to say perseverant. Is that a word? Yes. Okay. Yes. Mm -hmm. Goodness. I guess I haven't been in school for a while. Um, <laughs> I, I, think, I keep thinking perseverate. So I'm like, perse perseverate, perseverate. No, perseverant. Perseverance is the upside of perseveration. Um, yes. So, you know, we can, um, that, you know, for one thing, I have some, some profound gifts, um, mostly to do with writing, I would say, um, and maybe possibly with presenting or, but th that I have certain gifts that are sort of innate that I get to enjoy that I didn't even ask for, but I just get to enjoy them. Um, and that there is hope because there is hope through hard work and perseverance and hard work and perseverance is something that people on the spectrum are good at because we've been doing it since birth to get through life. And so I realized that, you know, um, as, as time passed and I was, and I, I uh, grew to understand my Asperger's better and understand my challenges better. It also dawned on me that um, there were no real fixed limits. It was just a matter of sort of pushing the envelope and seeing what I could accomplish. Um, and so the idea that, for example, I can't have theory of mind, I can't take other people's perspectives. Well, I've managed to push the envelope on that one quite a bit. I still, I'm still probably not as good as someone who doesn't have Asperger's, but I've made a lot of progress in trying to figure out how other people are feeling and what they need, um, what their perspectives are. Um, and this is just through practice and self-education and through imitating others, because imitation is a great way to learn if you're on the spectrum. Um, and that, so, you know, so there are no real actual defined limits that can't be pushed. So I'm always trying to push the limits of what it means to be on the spectrum in the areas that matter most to me. So I, I say to myself, I am not content to accept that I can't take other people's perspectives. And I don't care if it's a core aspect of the definition of autism. I want to push that and see if I can learn to take other people's perspectives. And so I'm working on that. Yeah. And, and I think, I mean, that's amazing. I think that's, you know, I, I'm, I'm feverishly writing things down uh, as far as, you know, not be defined by limits. And I, I, uh, I've talked about this super uh, briefly in the past, um, but I think it's, it's super important um, and, and really pushing the boundaries of what, you know, any diagnosis or whatever box people want to put us in. Um, it's always in my head too about pushing what those boundaries are and pushing what people might 
think of us or what we think of ourselves and, and kind of moving past that. And that is, I mean, that's a, that's like a growth mindset, right? Like, I think that's another term. Yes, that is a good term for it. A growth mindset, a growth mindset. And I think that's, that's, I mean, that's part of being human too. I mean, there are a lot of people not diagnosed with autism and, and I don't think maybe would be (laughs) that have, you know, difficulty with theory of mind, taking other people's perspectives. I've seen that. I think, I, <laughs> I think we, I think we kind of all have. Yeah, um, yeah. People can't see outside of their own. This, I think, it's sort of the reverse of what we're talking about. Is they can't see past their own boundaries and limitations, and you know, within their box, they don't know anything else. Yeah. Um, and I mean, if they don't try, if they don't try, they never will. Exactly. You, know, you have to, you have to like prioritize it and kind of work on it. Right. Right. Exactly. So um, I'm wondering after, so post, here we go. I, I use markers of age sometimes because it's how I systematize my thinking. I think but, I do that too, actually. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I relate things to like, oh, well, that must have been like 20 years ago because my daughter was born or, you know, like something. I have all these weird things about ages. Um, yes. But but I'm wondering, uh, so at like post-diagnosis, what was, what was the... I guess the the growth part for you, how did you approach things maybe differently than you had before that? Um, well, <laughs> I was just thinking there's something I wanted to share um, sure. with the listeners. And so I think I want to share it quickly and then answer that question. And Absolutely. it'll provide a little bit of a framework. Yeah. yeah. So I'm, I'm really into Buddhism um, in within the past like five years or so. Um, and my introduction to Buddhism was a book called The Four Agreements by Don Miguel, Don Miguel Ruiz Toltec. I'm yeah. sure I'm butchering the pronunciation because I don't That's speak Spanish. That's a great Spanish. book. That's a great um, book. <laughs> but it's a wonderful book. And it was my introdu- introduction to Buddhism because it's taken from Buddhism. So there are these four agreements. So two of them changed my life. The other two I already kind of knew. So... <laughs> So the two agreements that changed my life were, number one, don't take anything personally. It says nothing others do is because of you. What others say and do is a projection of their own reality. And the other one um, was always do your best, which seems simple, but the explanation was really interesting. It says always do your best. Your best is going to change from moment to moment. It will be different when you are healthy as opposed to sick. Under any circumstance, simply do your best and you will avoid self-judgment, self-abuse, and regret. So armed with these two agreements, don't take anything personally. Nothing is personal, which is amazing. And always do your best. I found the courage to go around and basically tell everybody that I was on the spectrum. Um, And if they didn't take it well, well, that was their problem, not mine. You know, I learned a lot about them from the way they took it. And if people outright denied it, and this included some mental health professionals and some teachers and, you know, family members, extended family members, if they outright denied it, that was their problem. And that told me something about them and not about me. And I managed to not take it too personally and not get too upset or at least be aware of the fact that it wasn't personal. And then 
always do your best was was really important to me because um, one of the things I learned, and I think Professor Tony Atwood has talked about this um, in his talks, and it's it's really meaningful, is that um, the degree to which we are impaired by our autistic traits, the negative ones, really varies from day to day based on how well rested we are and what's going on and how busy we are and just how you wake up feeling in the morning. So some days I'm more autistic than other days. So the always do your best agreement kind of told me that some days I'm not going to be able to overcome my clumsy social skills or poor theory of mind or extreme reactivity to loud noises or aversion to crowds or social avoidance. There are some days that I'm just going to have to let those, you know, autistic tendencies guide me. And then other days I can really push forward and for all intents and purposes, you know, the autism is not in charge. I'm, I'm in charge and what I want is in charge and I do better socially and I get out in the world more. Um, and those things were really important in guiding me um, and viewing my Asperger's or autism as a sort of um, like a live animal or like a living document, you know, that, that, that changes all the time um, and that, that's not static and that doesn't define me, but that, that just sort of um, morphs with like, I don't know, like how bad my rosacea is. Like it just, it just sort of varies from day to day. Um, and I, um, I just, I sort of, I decided that I want to live in a world where I can tell everybody, absolutely everybody, including my employer at the time, that I'm on the spectrum and anyone who rejects that, I just don't want to be around. So I just sort of made a like a, a decision, a kind of a somewhat rigid, rigid decision that that was what I wanted and that was what I needed and that was what I was going to do. And it worked out quite well because I think I told it in an appropriate way at, at the appropriate time. And, you know, I rehearsed ahead of time and it worked out and um, it made me feel that I no longer needed to be ashamed of who I am, which I think was the ultimate goal. The ultimate goal was to gain enough acceptance of the whole me that I could let go of some of the shame that I had learned from childhood for being different. Hi, this is Elia. Just wanted to let you know that SSG also offers trainings, consultations, and parent coaching. Uh, check out my offerings at thespectrumstrategy.com and I'd love to hear from you. Right. That's, um, that's, I'm feeling very, uh, impacted by that statement because I think, um, I think a lot of people feel that way. And I mean, in other words, feel shamed by their childhood or by, you know, school experience, family yeah. experience, what, yeah. what have you, um, and, and maybe carry that into adulthood with partners or, you know, really other relationships in their, uh, in their lives. And it's, it's, uh, it's a beautiful way to think of 
you know, hey, this is, I think this is what people are striving for, right? If you like scroll through social media, it's like, just be yourself and tell everyone and it's okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, um, yeah. And, and, and yes, but, or I should say yes, and. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but as you said, it's um, the right timing for that. Starting maybe I would guess with the right people because, you know, people who you trust more, I think will be, you know, are going to be open and accept you no matter what because they already do so right it's kind of one way to do it but as it moves into employers and you know school um, or other relationships you have it can get more um, yeah more scary you do have to be ready for things to not to not go the way that you had hoped right you have to be ready for that right emotionally prepared for that Right. Um, and I think for me, I sort of needed this feeling of like purging of my shame. And that yeah. was how I wanted to do it. Um, but I think uh, it probably varies from person to person. And I can imagine there are circumstances under which disclosure would not would not be appropriate. And um, I just managed to somehow avoid them. By grace or something. <laughs> I was I was okay. <laughs> I didn't I didn't lose my job. And my job was just, you know, working in a library. So, you know, that's fine for Aspies. Right. <laughs> and they don't care. The books don't care. <laughs> but I think it's important. I think oftentimes we've we make in our heads that the responses are going to be much more dramatic often than what they might actually be. Right. I mean, I think sometimes we can make ourselves way more scared of what the potential negative scenarios are instead of being um, inspired by what the positive side is. And it sounded like you were more inspired by the positive side of saying, I just need to, like you said, purge it from me and kind of let it go. I don't know. It seems like that's just a much more positive approach than all the bad things that could happen when I tell somebody something. Right. Well, I mean, it worked for my life circumstances. I think if people have different life circumstances, disclosure might not be um, the best choice. So I, I certainly wouldn't want to recommend that everyone go out and disclose <laughs> to everyone the way that I decided to. But I will say, I, when you were talking about um, stewing in the mind about the negative um, potential negative reactions, that was part of why I did it, because I didn't want to stew in my head about what could go wrong. I just wanted to get out and do it and see what could go wrong. There's there's this quote from um, Mark Twain, I think, who says, I've lived through some terrible things in my life, many of which never happened. Yes, I've heard that. <laughs> so you know that one. So it's like we, especially if we're prone to anxiety, um, which autistic people absolutely are, we can, you know, social anxiety, we can go over and over in our minds, what's going to go wrong in a social interaction. And I'd rather just have the interaction so that I can, you know, move on to my next worry, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Realistically. <laughs> no, but I mean, it kind of makes sense. It's right. It's like, hey, you know, we don't, you don't really know what's going to happen until you, um, you kind of just step out there and just do it. And then you can evaluate as you're in it. Uh, or post, you know, depending on um, on the particular scenario, but uh, but that makes a lot of sense. Yes. So, <laughs> I wanted to talk a little bit about another um, fun thing that I got from Buddhism, which is values. Um, I'm sure that other religions also talk about values, but I just arrived at them via Buddhism. I think um, until I 
was in my early 30s um, and got into Buddhism, I didn't really think that much about my values. Um, and then I went to this awesome um, talk uh, like a, in a Buddhist community about values. And I came out of it and I was like, oh my God, this is my latest special interest. This is amazing. <laughs> so trying to think about values and specifically how, how my values can shape my social interactions. And the way I was thinking about it is so some values are fixed and inflexible. Um, like I think self-compassion is generally good to have all the time. Um, not killing people. I think that's pretty fixed and inflexible. I think I'm going to stick with that value all the time. Mm -hmm. And so that that works well for me as an autistic person with a tendency towards rigidity to identify my values and be very fixed in them. Like I absolutely will not kill someone. That works right. well. That's good. I'm not a sociopath. <laughs> it works well for me. <laughs> I will never deviate from it. But the piece that is more challenging given my tendency towards cognitive rigidity from my autism is that some values are situational and they need to be flexible. And what matters most depends on the situation. And this is where I think a lot of autistic people struggle. I think a lot of autistic people think that the truth is important and lying is bad. And then we apply that to all situations and we tell the truth and we don't engage in white lies. So we end up hurting people. Um, and one thing that for me was transformational in my ability to have really positive, kind interactions with other people was shifting my value set in social interactions from the truth is of utmost important, the truth is my primary value, to Kindness, kindness is most important and nurturing this relationship is most important. And once I made that shift, I stopped correcting people when they used bad grammar and I stopped correcting people when they got the facts wrong and I stopped correcting people in general <laughs> and I stopped being such a stickler for the truth and my relationships got a lot better because I stopped annoying people and people started to feel valued and cared for. And I started to focus on treating them with kindness and nurturing the interaction and letting go of the need to be right and the need to find the truth. And I can tell you that when you're on the spectrum, letting go of the need to be right mm -hmm. is not easy. It is a journey, <laughs> you know, like when you're right and it's like, I know I'm right and I know you're wrong and I'm still making a conscious effort not to tell you that. Right. So hard, Very. but so important and so productive. Mm-hmm. And I think the, the flip side of that is to to go down the path of proving the other person wrong um, in some ways. Right. It, it's it's its own. So so to be right about what to what end? Like, so what do you get at? That's, the, get that's at the question. It? The question you need to ask is, what is the goal here? Right. Now that I've proven that I'm right, what have I accomplished? If I'm on the debate team, you know, I might. <laughs> It, sure. It's absolutely the perfect place to focus on what's right. But if I'm trying to have, you know, an empathic conversation with another person, so it's very contextual. What, which value 
is most important is very contextual and contextual situations are hard for people on the spectrum. Changing based on the context is hard for people on the spectrum. So this has been a hard one, but I find it very important. Yeah. And I, I, I wonder if sometimes, because having worked with other adults, you know, the the need for other whoever they're in relationship with and i mean family partners work relationship all of that um the the need to have transparency from the people around them i, I just i think that helps a lot because i think it helps to get you know kind of um assuming that they are also you know a bit able to explain to you <laughs> what it is are they able to be transparent with you um do you find that that is something that you you seek out in the people that are around you i love transparency mm-hmm. i mean if i could um if I were in charge of the world, everyone would be transparent. <laughs> I'm not sure we would even have to have white lies. If I were in charge of the world, this is how it would go. Someone would say, does this dress make you look fat? And you would be able to say, yes, it does, but it doesn't matter because I'm not judging your fatness and you have many other positive <laughs> attributes. So it's okay. Just wear the dress and focus on what's inside you. Now, I know, I know that we don't live in that world. Yeah. So I know that I can't talk that way, but I regret it because I think transparency is amazing. I think it's one of my foremost values. And um, when people are not transparent with me, I feel like I'm going crazy because I don't know what they want from me. What do you want? What are you trying to get? Just tell me. Just tell me. So I think, yes, for people on the spectrum, transparency from, you know, from the get-go transparency. And in a very matter-of-fact way, you know, you can say in a very matter-of-fact way, um, that hurt my feelings when you said that. Uh, I would have preferred that you say it in a different way, just very matter-of-fact. Mm-hmm. Again, um, without yeah. that judgment uh, attached to it, I think. Without that judgment attached to it, because knowing that people with autism are doing the best they can, even when they end up being what we would view as like, completely socially inappropriate they're totally doing the best they can and the feedback the feedback um is really important like i love when i get feedback about social inappropriateness but i do want to receive that feedback in um a non-judgmental neutral calm way because if i'm kind of yelled at or criticized i'm gonna start to feel ashamed and start to feel really lousy myself yeah so no, yeah. no, that, that totally that totally makes sense. And I think this goes back to when you mentioned before from the four agreements, you know, don't take anything personally um, from the flip side. If someone, you know, in seeking that transparency, if the person that if we go back to your example, that felt um, that their feelings were hurt by something that was said, Again, without feeling taking it personally, but giving the feedback, like you're saying now, that hey, that that actually did hurt my feelings, um, and and honestly, probably knowing that the person didn't really mean it, and obviously is you know not um, again not taking it personally with what they're saying because you're not sure what's going on in that other person's um, head and what their experience is. So um, yes. it kind of all ties together. And it, you know, it can become a learning experience, which is so important because if I hurt your feelings and you say to me, actually, that really hurt my feelings. And then you offer a remedy. 
I, I would have felt better if you had said it this way, or if you had said this, then I have a learning experience. And, you know, Aspies are really good at like memorizing social tricks and learning new social skills that we can commit to memory and recycle. So every time I'm corrected in a polite, kind way, I'm given new material to work with so that I can get it right the next time, which is really great. Right. Wow. Yeah, no, that's, that's, a, a, those are great tips for, for everyone, because I mean, a lot of uh, my listeners are mostly educators, parents and adults. So um, I think that fits right into the entire, <laughs> the entire demographic that we're talking about. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Making something into a learning experience in a kind and gentle manner um, is is so valuable. Aspies love to learn, you know, so we can capitalize on that. <laughs> but it has to be neutral because if it's very emotional, then we won't be able to learn. Right. Well, because that, we'll that kind of brings into. Di- yeah, exactly. Brings in yeah. different things. And sometimes it takes uh, a little bit of uh, decompressing time first and then maybe coming back. <laughs> Yes, I love to learn, but I'm definitely not always capable of it, depending on how I'm feeling. (laughs) I have a lot of emotion regulation challenges. Well, I think that goes for everyone, because even if, if, let's say, I was the one whose feelings were hurt, I could be very upset in the moment, and maybe it's not the right time to give feedback. Maybe it's take a minute and then come back, you know? Oh, you! I mean, you might even have to come back next week, but but that's still better than nothing. (laughs) It's one thing to say, don't take it personally. It's another thing to deal with, you know, your organic emotions, which make themselves heard. Right, right. Um, So you've, you've, I mean, I've enjoyed so much our time talking together. If there were one more thing you could offer for our listeners tonight, uh, what would that, what would that be? Okay, for our listeners. So tell me again, like who, um, like, are we, ta- are people on the spectrum and educators and parents? Like who? Yeah, I think it's all, it's Every, all of everybody. That. everybody. And I think there's many people in there that I call, you know, maybe doubly or triply qualified. So. Right. So you, you're, you're diagnosed and you have kids and you're, <laughs> right, yeah, right, right. It could right. totally be that. Um, Gosh, because I, yeah, no, that's really interesting because I usually give, um, I sort of usually give advice based on like the demographics. So this is the first time that I'm thinking in terms of like the entire composite demographic. All right, <laughs> let me think for one second. Um, um, well, I think... In the end, kindness is what matters most. See how many places in your life you can apply it. The more, the better. Uh, I think that's I think that's beautiful, and I think that makes a lot of sense, um, especially now. And yeah. if I were to add one thing, I would say kindness towards yourself as well. Yes, that's a very important place to apply it, and you always. No matter how bad things are, you always have the option of self-compassion. That's something that I've learned. Yes. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. I think that was a beautiful way to end. Um, I very much appreciate spending time with you. And, you know, hopefully we can talk again. This was such a pleasure, Leah. This was um, 
even more fun than I had imagined. It's just such a pleasure. Thank you for your interest. Thanks and I for really listening hope that, to Autism in Real um, Life. This I hope is that Ilya Walsh. Draw and if you away like from the show, it, whatever, please hit subscribe so you can get notified each time a new Next episode week, is really released. Enjoy your podcast. I also offer training, you, consultations, and parent Thank you very coaching. much. Take care. I would love to Bye-bye. help you in any way that I can. You can check out my offerings at thespectrumstrategy.com. And when you join my email list, you can get a code to receive a discount off of an online class or a coaching session. Looking forward to hearing from you. Take care and see you next time.